0: Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews, from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read.
1: Hello, Books and Nachos listeners. This is Arnie, and I am here to celebrate our Independence Day, or Resurgence, which came out this past weekend. It's what's currently our silver donation bonus podcasts over at nowplayingpodcast.com. Our review of the first Independence Day film came out last Friday. Our review of Resurgence is coming out this Friday, but in between... Fox Studios has commissioned tie-in books, comics, and an entire publishing initiative around Independence Day, really trying to bring back what they'd done with that first movie and add a whole bunch of new stuff to it. The impetus for this was the book Independence Day Crucible by Greg Keyes, published by Titan Books. It's described as the official prequel to Independence Day Resurgence, and it's really an interquel between... Independence Day and the new sequel, and so I really wanted to find out what happened to the earth in the 20 years between. I knew that this book wouldn't be required reading, because if you have to read a 320-page novel before seeing a movie, well, a lot less people read these books than go see these movies, so everything in this book should have been caught up very quickly in the new Independence Day film, but reading this book should enrich your enjoyment of it. I really hoped so, but that was just part of it. Back in March, Titan Books released an Omnibus, collecting three Independence Day novels that were published in the late 90s. And I have not read any of these, but I did do some research into them to find out if they would be required reading before I read Crucible. But The first of those three books is Silent Zone by Stephen Molstad. And it was published in 1997, and it's actually a prequel to the first Independence Day. And it follows Brent Spiner's character, Dr. Brackish Oaken, in the early 70s, uncovering a government conspiracy to bury all evidence of alien visitation throughout the years. It's supposedly the, quote, true story, end quote, of Roswell... And we get a scene of the aliens' first arrival and what their plans were back in the 40s. The result of all of this is Oaken becoming an Area 51 researcher. And all of this is told from the point of view of Oaken's journal, which was found July 5th, 1996. A couple days after he was strangled by that alien and either killed, if you thought that as I did with the first movie, or put in a coma, as we're going to find out with the second movie. It also gave some interesting information that no aliens from the mothership above Area 51 survived the explosion of when Randy Quaid's Russell case crashed into its primary weapon. The second original tie-in novel from this omnibus was published in 1999 called Independence Day, War in the Desert. Of the three stories, this one sounds somewhat the most interesting. If you recall that scene in the first Independence Day where you've got the British men in the desert getting the Morse code transmission, they're like, It's the Americans! Well, it's about bloody time! Well, this is an entire book devoted to them, yes? This is what happens when you get tie-in novels, it happened with Star Wars, you find out the alien begging for a drink at the bar has a rich backstory all his own. We are all the stars of our own personal movies, I suppose. But here, those British military pilots did engage in the combat as directed by the Americans. But on their crashed spaceship, many of the aliens survived and continued the war, planning to use biological weapons against people on Earth. I mentioned in the Independence Day review that I hope all of you heard that after Independence Day and those ships crashed, my friends back in 96 said what's next is the ground war because they didn't all die here, this book proves that. A number of Middle Eastern nations stand together with these British pilots and fight the aliens in land and hand-to-hand combat. Now, I've not read this, but I did get a chuckle that one Amazon reviewer did call it, Independence Day, bore in the desert. So, I'm not exactly enticed. The third book in the omnibus is the original novelization of Independence Day that was released back in July of 96, which from everything I read just retells the movies with a couple extra scenes thrown in that may or may not have been in an original script but not the final film. But now come the new tie-ins. Now Titan didn't just release this new novel Crucible, they released a five-issue comic series called Dark Fathom, at least in the collected trade paperback. These comics were released individually as well, It was written by Victor Gishler, plus a number of artists involved in it as well. And it focuses on Captain Joshua Adams, who's a character not in the original film, but is in this new Resurgence, played by William Fichtner, and in Resurgence, he's a general. I'll give you a brief overview and review of this comic. It discusses Adams having a fear of water, but being assigned to lead a team of marines on a submarine, ...to one of the alien vessels that crashed in the ocean. They get down there to find out that that ship is not like the others trying to destroy the cities... ...but in fact drill right into a fault line in the ocean. And if they drill far enough, it's going to trigger earthquakes and tsunamis that will kill millions. Despite the resistance of the crew of the submarine and even the Marines who don't believe him to be a good leader... ...Adams does succeed in infiltrating the ship underwater... Combating many of the aliens on board, and even eventually lifting off the spaceship when the aliens have set it to self-destruct, so it self-destructs harmlessly in the air instead of right on that fault line, which would cause global destruction. It's a completely needless story that helps retcon, in 1996, the alien's weren't really trying to blow up the city, but actually trying to drill into the earth, which is going to become a major plot point in Independence Day Resurgence. It also introduces us to a new character in a not-really-engaging storyline that feels like it has no importance, just still detailing some of the post-1996 war cleanup. I wish I could find a lot to say positive about these comics. The most positive thing I can say is they're really quick reads, The art wasn't terribly impressive, the story didn't really engage me, and by the time issues 4 and 5 came out, I felt like I was doing homework specifically for this Books and Nachos review, and not really enjoying the comics themselves. There are many other comics I'd rather be reading, like Walking Dead. But that brings us to our primary topic of conversation today, and that is Independence Day Crucible. Now this is written by Greg Keyes, and if you are a constant listener of Books and Nachos, that name may sound a little bit familiar. Stewart in LA reviewed a Greg Keyes novel back in 2014, tying into our spring donation series as well, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes Firestorm. And that was a book that bridged the original Rise of the Planet of the Apes with its sequel Dawn of the Planet of the Apes that was taking place in that universe many years later. And as Stewart tells it, I've not read that book personally, and after hearing his review, I would never read that book. But it details the plague that overtook humanity and leading to a human society that is scraping and scrapping to get by. Now I guess Fox, who made the Planet of the Apes movies, looked at what Keyes did with that and thought, hey, we need that exact same thing for Independence Day, something that's going to tell the fans what happened after the war of 1996 and introduce us to the characters that are going to populate Independence Day resurgence. I've read Greg Keyes' work before, maybe not the Planet of the Apes novel, but he wrote several Star Wars books in the New Jedi Order series, which details over the span of over a dozen novels and even more short stories, the War of the New Republic against the Yuuzhan vong aliens. Keyes wrote the Edge of Victory duology, Conquest, and Rebirth, as well as the novel The Final Prophecy. Now, it's been over a decade since I read those novels, I can't give them proper reviews without rereading. What I can say is, I don't remember them. And the best books of the New Jedi Order, I remember well. These, I had to look up summaries to even remind me what happened in them. I never thought any of the New Jedi Order novels were bad per se, but some were rote and some were outstanding. I mention that just to say I have a familiarity with this author and his writing style, which did come back to me as I was reading Crucible. Now, Crucible was released over a month before this podcast is coming out, back on May 24th of 2016, and it came with very little fanfare, despite being as plugged in as I can to Independence Day, the sequel, which I was very excited for. It took Stuart emailing me saying, hey, they've put out this novel, someone should read it, and it's not going to be me. For me to decide, hey, I actually am excited enough for Resurgence that I wasn't just assigned reading Crucible. I wanted to read Crucible. I wanted to see what it explained because I knew Will Smith wasn't coming back for the sequel. I knew we were going to focus on his foster son, Dylan, who we were introduced to in the first movie. I knew this sequel had the aliens coming back. I wanted to see what happened in this interim period. And I'm going to start right now by giving a non-spoiler warning. I'm going to tell you what happens in this book as if you're never going to read it. But I don't think I can spoil this book because, quite honestly, this book doesn't have a plot. This book doesn't have main characters and supporting characters. It is a number of parallel stories taking place from 1996 to 2016, and all of them involve characters impacted by the war of 1996, but it's not like it leads to anything. This book doesn't have a climax. It has a final page, but it had nothing in it that I would consider the culmination of all the plot threads. Most of these characters never even meet until on screen in the next movie. And honestly, I waited to see Resurgence before I did this review because I wanted to know where this book tied in and if there were things this book explained that I felt the movie didn't do well enough. There certainly are. So I'm going to explain all of that that came out of Crucible while I review it, but I will remain completely spoiler-free for Resurgence. The most that I would be able to detail is the overall alien plot, which is determined pretty quickly in the sequel film. But as this book actually lacks a narrative, the best way to go through it may be somewhat chronologically, because the book actually opens... After a brief prologue in 1947 discussing the moving of one of the aliens from the Roswell incident, and then the army person who moved the body had a nightmare and woke up and drew a big circle with a line through it, something that would be recurring in this book and in Resurgence the film, the book kicks off proper on July 3rd, 1996. This is when the aliens had destroyed New York, destroyed L.A., destroyed Washington, D.C., as well as countless other cities off-screen, but before the Americans had come up with their plan for a counterattack and really all seemed lost. And the first character we're introduced to at this period is a brand new one, young Jake Morrison, who's played by Liam Hemsworth in Resurgence, but in 1996 was a very young boy whose parents had sent him off to camp, and they returned to their home in L.A. when the aliens attacked. Jake witnesses with his camp counselors from a ridge the destruction of Los Angeles and Steve Hillier's squad of fighters trying to mount a counterattack and failing, leaving Jake an orphan, one of the younger camp members, not understanding why he couldn't be taken back to his parents. We also see during this time another brand new character, Dikembe Umbutu. And if that doesn't sound familiar, if you've seen Resurgence and you still aren't ringing to the name Dikembe Umbutu, he was the African warlord in the film, who had a pretty major part, but they don't really say his name all that often. He's just the guy with the machetes who assists the geeky accountant in killing some aliens. If there is an arc to this book, it is the story of Dikembe Umbutu. The book has the assignment of catching us up on what happens with Jeff Goldblum's David Levinson... Bill Pullman's President Whitmore, and many other characters who starred in that first film. But the one who gets the most interesting story here, the one who may be the only character with an actual arc, is Dikembe Umbutu, who was in Oxford in 1996, studying art. His father had implored him to join the military, which his twin brother did do, But Dikembe wanted to be a painter and believed art-enriched life. He was near the destruction of London, but survived it, and eventually met an American survivor as well, a female, who was the caretaker of her employer's yacht. And so Dikembe and this woman spend what they consider possibly their last days alive on the yacht with each other, having sex. And when the war is over and the aliens are defeated, Dikembe decides in this ruins of the world he knew, it is time to go home to Central Africa, to his province, and once again be reunited with his father and his twin brother, Bakari. Upon arriving back at his home, he finds out his father has declared his own nation, the National Republic of Mbutu. His father, Upanga Mbutu, declared himself ruler of this new nation, and he closed the nation off, fearing imperialism, fearing that any aid they requested from the Americans or the British or any other nation would lead to colonization. And so he closed the borders, and it was up to the people of this new National Republic of Ubuntu to fight off the aliens, of which there were many The alien ship that was above Umbutu wasn't there to destroy cities as it was in London and Houston. And while it was downed, it is the single most intact alien ship across the globe. And so a ground war waged for 10 years in the National Republic of Umbutu with heavy casualties on both sides. The people of that new nation used guns, machetes, whatever they had in battle after battle with the aliens. And Dikembe was recruited into his father's regime at a very high rank, and he did give up art to become a warrior. And while he still had the pulling, and still felt he was dealing with his father's disapproval over his more artistic life, he became embroiled in that society and its defenses. Still... Throughout the 10-year war, he was the one constantly pressuring his father, why don't we look at getting aid? Why don't we look at working with the rest of the world? Their isolationist views make Dikembe's story the only one that really has a conclusion to it. And it really is the most exciting because it's the only place where the war continued for a long period of time. Because as the book details, yes, the ground war that I predicted would happen, did happen. Captain Steve Hiller, which was played by Will Smith in that first film, was described heading over to Russia immediately, despite being the hero that flew a spaceship and saved the world. The very next day, he was sent to Russia to assist their pilots in fighting enemy spacecraft. And he is shot down. He survives, but he is shot down. And it's a shame because that would have been a very heroic death for him to die fighting the aliens if not somewhat disappointing that it happened the day after he saved the world. But this battle against the aliens unified the planet, and President Whitmore, the character again played by Bill Pullman, is leading a charge of globalization. He wants to establish the Earth-Space Defense Program. Knowing the aliens will return, he wants to be ready. If Earth is to be protected, we can't keep doing what we've been doing, which is isolated arms races. So he tries to partner with every nation on the planet to team up and pool our resources. And the Earth Space Defense Program will have scientists from across the globe working in different areas, but all for a unified goal and all under the direction of one body. This is quite a thrust of the novel, is the coming together of humanity in the aftermath of the destruction. I like that aspect of it. I think that's a really interesting take. It makes what's happening on their Earth so different than our Earth. It becomes almost an alternate history story. And yet, it has some real-world parallels as well. Independence Day didn't really take its destruction all that seriously, other than a few maudlin scenes of Vivica Fox driving through some wreckage. Here, I think Keys does bring a post-9-11 kind of mentality to what this kind of destruction and loss of life would be like. That said, the way this is told does come off as more than a little pandering. Obviously, the movie business in 2016 is far different than it was in 1996, specifically with China. We know Iron Man 3 inserted some scenes specifically for the Chinese release. We know the upcoming Doctor Strange. Changed the ancient one from a Tibetan monk because China doesn't believe in Tibet, considers it rebels that should not be considered a nation. And so, yeah, films are trying to appeal to a Chinese audience. And this book really has a scene that goes on for far too long of President Whitmore almost begging the Chinese to be part of this globalization to a degree that has some basis in reality. The Chinese have not always been at the forefront of collaboration with the United States. But when President Whitmore literally gives them the moon and says, it is China's job to protect the moon and develop all things on the moon. China, the moon is yours. It's like, okay, we're really showing in this book that we're going to at least be bilateral. And that does happen in this upcoming movie. There are a couple of Chinese characters Rain Lau, played by Angela Baby, a Chinese pilot, and Jiang Lau, her uncle who commands the moon base. We're going to be introduced to those characters here, and they are brought in because, again, China owns the moon. Of course, who's going to run the Earth-Space Defense Program? The natural choice is David Levinson, Jeff Goldblum's character. But... He actually declines choosing to be a researcher in the program because bureaucracy and being a leader isn't something that appeals to him. He has the ideas and he has the thrust of what the Earth Space Defense Program can do. He accompanies Whitmore to China, but he's not the man for the Earth Space Defense Program. His wife Connie, however, they did get remarried, has no problem with leadership As she decides to no longer be the White House press secretary and instead runs for senator and she is elected. And while we see these life events take place, we do keep cutting to Jake as he grows up. He is dropped off at an orphanage where he meets a much younger orphan, Charlie Ritter, who's going to be played by Travis Tope in the sequel. Charlie was dropped off there really abandoned at the orphanage, which had no beds, and immediately gets into trouble with a bully. But Jake, being the nice guy he is, takes Charlie under his wing, even gets Charlie as a fifth roommate so that Charlie doesn't have to be sent away. And together, Charlie and Jake share their fantasies about the future, which for Jake includes being a fighter pilot. He's very inspired by the War of 96 and the pilots that saved Earth, And so, he and Charlie are constantly playing pretend with a fake aircraft that he built out of just spare parts. It doesn't actually fly, it sits in a tree like a treehouse that has airplane gauges and controls. And those two have your standard teenage hijinks. Jake falls in love, and they have concerns about the test needed to enter the flight academy. Charlie, who is a technology whiz, builds a computer with some practice tests, because really... The world is shaping up to be aimed at the rich. And this may be a social commentary on our time, but we find out while the governments of the world have put tons and tons of money towards defense, they're still underfunding education. They're looking at rebuilding, but they're not allowing everyone to have an even chance. And this practice test costs so much that really only rich kids are able to get into the flight academy But it's thanks to Charlie and finding Tess a couple years old, Jake makes it in. He defies the odds and becomes an orphan who enters the military. And Charlie's a bit of a prodigy. He follows in Jake's footsteps. And it's in the Academy where Jake meets Dylan Hiller. And just to remind you if you haven't seen Independence Day in a while, Steve Hiller, Will Smith, married Jasmine, Vivica A. Fox, and Jasmine was the single mother of Dylan. Well, Dylan was adopted by Steve and takes his last name and grows up very much idolizing his father. And yes, as the son of the man who saved the world, he is one of the elite, one of the royalty. And so it's a very strange combination where at the Academy, Dylan and Jake become very fast friends. Jake, not being exposed to the politics of the time, had no idea Dylan is the son of Steve Hiller who saved the world, and Dylan... Appreciating a friend who pushed his capabilities. They both were competing over the best grades, the best flight assignments, and a girl. That girl is Patricia Whitmore, the president's daughter, who's played by Micah Monroe in this new film, different actress than the first. She also grew up royalty, son of Whitmore the president, and she too wanted to be a pilot like her dad. If you recall, her father was a pilot in the Gulf War and flew a fighter against the aliens and she also wants to grow up and go to the Academy. And Dylan has always had a crush on her and he's kind of entitled. He gets everything he wants because he's Steve Hiller's son. He's into the Academy. He is an ambassador. We see in this new movie, one of the first scenes, he's flying the American flag at a remembrance ceremony and he believes that as the son of one of the heroes who saved the earth, He deserves the daughter of another one of the heroes. He thinks he and Patricia are predestined just to be together. But Patricia thinks of Dylan like a brother and has far more romantic feelings for Jake. And so much of their story focuses on this love triangle. But Jake and Dylan are fiercely competitive and often push each other past the point of friendliness. They often explode in fights. And you really wonder, A, if Dylan's a dick, and B... How solid a footing their friendship is. Because we spend so much more time with Jake than we do with Dylan, it is very easy to sympathize more with Liam's Hemsworth character than with Jesse Usher's Dylan. Although Dylan does have some tragedy of his own. Steve Hiller is not in this new movie, Will Smith couldn't be signed, and so they kill him. And they kill him off screen. And it is in the most disappointing way I can imagine. And this is not the author's fault. It was announced online in viral materials and those kinds of online supplements that Steve Hiller died during a test flight. So he doesn't even get a heroic death. What happens is the Earth Space Defense Program is rushing. Billions are being spent and very few results are happening. And David, as lead researcher, is being pushed by the director and by the president, who at this point isn't Whitmore, but actually President William Gray, who was the general played by Robert Loggia in the first movie, who handily won the election after Whitmore's second term. Of course, he got reelected, But Gray was running against Albert Nimziki, the slimy Secretary of Defense, was played by James Rebhorn in the first film. So Gray, a military man, becomes president, and David is not able to do the results fast enough. He's trying to replicate weapons. He's trying to replicate flight technologies. And eventually, they push for a demonstration of one of the alien Earth hybrid aircraft, and Steve Hillier is the test pilot who's going to put on this display for the politicians and show the Earth Space Defense Program is a big success, and it's not. David tries to sign off on the technology. There just isn't the time. David's even barred from the Earth space defense program because of what they consider his obstructionist tactics. And the result is a terrible accident in which Steve Hiller dies trying to test pilot. And we don't even get to see that happen. We get to see Hiller climbing the controls. We get to see him at the beginning of the test flight. We begin to see things going wrong and then we cut forward several months, and we actually cut to Dylan in the cockpit at his academy, we never get to see Steve die. There's no glory in this. It's just, sorry, Will Smith, you're not coming back. Screw you, you're dead. A similar inglamorous death is given to Senator Spano, or now Senator Levinson, Margaret Collins' character who was the White House communications director. We don't get to see her die either. Now, we know Constance Spano isn't coming back. What we didn't know is that she was just driving home from work one night when a drunk driver hit her car and killed her. We get to see David's reaction after the fact, very depressed, very despondent, but she too is just killed off screen. David also does start to get back into dating. He has a romantic and sexual, biblical encounter with Dr. Catherine Marceau, who is a psychiatrist played by Charlotte Gainsbourg in the new film. But after their one encounter, David feels guilty about having sex after the death of his wife, even though a long time had passed, and so they become estranged. He stops returning Marceau's calls. But David, after the accident with Steve Hiller, finally does accept the position of director of the Earth Space Defense Program. And this leads us up to around 2011. And during this time, President Whitmore starts to have a bit of a mental breakdown. He's having visions and nightmares, and it turns out, and this is what was alluded to in that very first 1947 prologue. Anybody who had mental contact with the aliens starts to have visions. It's a big rip off of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where Richard Dreyfus is sculpting the mountain, but he doesn't know what he's doing. Now we have all these people who had mental contact with the aliens, who were telepathic, now have these visions and keep drawing this circle with a line through them, or sometimes scribbling in an alien language. And being the former heroic president, the Secret Service and his daughter Patricia conspire to keep his reputation intact. And Patricia even resigns from her job of being a pilot. She leaves the Academy and goes to Washington, D.C. to care for her father, who lives in Virginia. And she has to serve out the rest of her enlistment period as a White House aide to new President Elizabeth Lanford, who's played by Celia Ward in the next film. By this point, she is practically engaged to Jake, although we don't see them get legitimately engaged. They are when the new film rolls around. But we get to see the strain this puts on Dylan and Jake's friendship. And honestly, this love triangle really does help set up Dylan and Jake's animosity towards each other in the new film. But it's the one subplot never brought up. In the new movie, Patricia is Jake's fiancé, and Dylan and Jake have a beef but it's never over Patricia. I think this book does help enrich that story. But the actual final pages of the novel tell what we see in this new movie, which is the final break in Jake and Dylan's friendship, where they're competing for the sole United States spot in Legacy Squadron, which is to be the best pilots in the world. And there's only one spot Dylan feels entitled to it because he's Steve Hillier's foster son. Jake feels entitled to it because he's fought the hardest. And there's a mission in the Grand Canyon, a training flight. It becomes a race. Winner take all. Dylan does a daring maneuver that inadvertently collides with Dylan's ship. Dylan has to eject to stop from being killed. Jake is grounded. He'll never fly a fighter again. He is relegated to flying tugs. The fact that he can still fly is amazing in and of itself, they say that in the book, but it leaves him and Dylan not speaking, Jake with a crappy job, Charlie following Jake into that crappy job just to be with his longtime friend and the person who's looked out for him since the orphanage. And the book ends. I mean, there's no arc there. There's no story here. There's no resolution. There's no climax. But all of that goes back to Dikembe Mbutu, who I mentioned at the very beginning, in parallel with all these happenings and goings-on and changes in the world and colonization of the moon and Mars and Saturn, we keep going back to the National Republic of Ubuntu. And as I said, everybody whose mind was touched by the aliens started to have mental problems. Well, in the final days of the war in the National Republic of Ubuntu, the aliens formed a concentrated attack against Dekembe's father. And it was a mental assault as well as a physical one. So nobody in the world probably had the mental assault that happened to Opanga Umbutu. And in that final battle, Bakari Mbutu, Dikembe's twin brother, dies. But the Republic lives on, still isolationist. Dikembe is promoted as general of the military. But he watches as his countrymen starve and die because of his father's desire to reject all foreign aid. And Dikembe tries repeatedly to reason with his father. David Levinson desperately wants the ESD program to come in and look at this ship, the most intact alien ship there is, the one from which they can probably salvage the most tech. But under Upanga, that is not going to happen. And finally, in June 2013, Dikembe stages a coup. To hopefully not kill, but to at least remove his father from power. It fails, and Dikembe is put in a prison, his father also not choosing to kill his last remaining son. But Dikembe does escape, and once again, leads the people. And even though Dikembe would prefer his father captured, one of his countrymen does kill the insane dictator Mbutu. And Dikembe is made leader of the National Republic. This is when he calls finally on foreign aid, virtually immediately after his father's death, bringing in Marceau and Levinson from the ESD, as well as hopefully aid to his people. And what does that mean? Really nothing in Independence Day resurgence. We do visit the National Republic of Mbutu briefly, and Dikembe does then leave Mbutu with David Levinson and some others and never returns, and so... We get a great backstory for a man who's a very minor character. The only thing I can say is the backstory as a painter and an artist and a person who is shoes battle. My mental image of such a man was certainly not Diobia Opari, the actor who plays him in the film. I didn't expect someone quite so muscular and quite so tall to be a painter. It's a stereotype, I know. I'm guilty. But again... All of this just is set up to go into Independence Day resurgence. And I've summarized it pretty quickly here. And yet, this book goes on for 320 pages, year after year, month after month. It does jump forward in time at periods, but there's so much going on with Jake and Dylan at the academy, so much going on with President Whitmore and politicking. And I'll just say, I know Independence Day is a melodrama in which we have a bunch of character tropes in a situation, but they're character tropes you enjoy seeing. And really, Independence Day is a disaster film and an action film, and that's where I really love that movie is, when Will Smith is behind the cockpit flying a mission and the aliens are blowing up cities. It's really exciting. Now imagine Independence Day without any of the battles. This is the box Greg Keyes has put in. The aliens are gone. He makes the most he can out of the ground battle. And these are the most exciting parts of the book are in the early scenes. And it does stretch on in the National Republic of Mbutu. But there's very little action, a whole lot of politics, a whole lot of melodrama, a whole bunch of characters that you don't necessarily care about pre-watching the movie. And yet you should read this book before you watch the movie in order to really understand what's going on with these people. Because there's a lot of dropped lines. Patricia does mention Dylan as royalty, and Jake does mention growing up at the orphanage with Charlie and his parents dying. One line here, one line there. But that does not an emotional connection make. If some of this were dramatized in the film, it would make the connection to the characters stronger there. Because it wasn't, this book really is kind of required reading. But it's horrible to read because it stretches on and on with no action, no aliens. A little bit of hints drawn. Why are these people drawing the big letter G? Why are they getting these symbols from aliens other than to rip off Spielberg's masterpiece? What is all going on here? You got to watch the movie to find out. And do you want action? You got to watch the movies for that too. At one point, I talked to Stuart while I was reading this book. And I said, you know, there's some interesting character stuff. But it is such a slog, and it took me so long to read. It made me hate literature. It made me hate all books. It made me disdainful of fiction that this book existed. And it's not necessarily Greg Key's fault, but just the directive behind Crucible. Truthfully, I am one of the most ardent enthusiasts of the first Independence Day movie that I know And I have so much excitement going into Resurgence that we're finally getting back to this world. And this book put quite the damper on that excitement. And I'm like, wow, I read 320 pages. Now I have to go see a movie just to give a shit. So no, I really suggest you stay far away from Independence Day, Crucible. And no, I will not be reading any more of the Independence Day books they have planned or comics. They're doing a novelization of Resurgence, There's talks about more novels taking place after Resurgence. I'm going to wait for the theatrical releases from now on. But I hope that if you've seen Resurgence, or if you're planning on seeing Resurgence, this review helps you to know what you missed and save you from reading this book. I feel like the slogan for this episode is, I read this so you don't have to. But then I also do hope you will join Stuart, Jacob, and I at nowplayingpodcast.com for our bonus series This summer and spring, we're doing Ghostbusters. We're doing six sci-fi hits from 1986, including Big Trouble in Little China, Night of the Creeps, Space Camp, and others. And we're doing Men in Black and Independence Day. And those are our silver level donation, a donation of $10 or more. And it's your donations that allow Now Playing to keep doing the show that we do week after week. So you can get up to 14 bonus podcasts, including if you donate today, you'll hear our review of Independence Day. And if you can't tell from this book review, I will be very enthusiastic about that first Independence Day. And then this Friday our review of Independence Day Resurgence. I have seen the film, as I mentioned, and I am very much looking forward to discussing that one with Stuart and Jacob as well. Meanwhile, here at Books and Nachos, the Stephen King series is on slight hold. I have, for the past two months, been occupied with a medical issue with a family member of mine, and so my review of Firestarter is going much slower than I thought, but Stuart is going to be back, starting next Monday... As he reviews Robert Ludlum's three born novels. The new movie Jason Bourne is coming out in theaters in just a few weeks, and so over on now playing's main feed, we are reviewing the Bourne series of Bourne Identity, Bourne Supremacy, Bourne Ultimatum, Bourne Legacy, and Jason Bourne. And oh yeah, we did already review the 1980s television miniseries adaptation of the Bourne Identity as well. So hopefully you'll join us at nowplayingpodcast.com for those Born reviews and join Stuart back here as he reviews all three of Ludlum's original Born novels. And then I'll be back in the fall. Now Playing is going to be doing more Stephen King films and God willing, I will be here as well doing some more Books and Nachos. The goal is to catch up so that Now Playing is covering the new big screen release of It in September 2017. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your donation to Now Playing. And until next time, please remember to support your local bookstore.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com support. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. And no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vingonza Media Incorporated.
1: And the New Jedi or, the Orr, New Jedi Orr, cause their boat is broken. Now we have all these people who had mental contact with the aliens mowing my lawn. And your donation, ah,